0: What's up, guys? This is Ryan from Bible Dingers, and we are back to give you another episode in this Revelation series. And on this episode, we are focusing in on the historic premillennialism view of Revelation. And we were honored to have Dr. Craig Blomberg join us for this episode and uh, we wanted to have him on because he's such a distinguished voice that represents this view that we really wanted to hear what he had to say on the topic. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Blomberg before we jump right into the interview. Dr. Blomberg joined the faculty of Denver Seminary in 1986 and he's currently a distinguished professor of New Testament. Dr. Blomberg completed his PhD in New Testament specializing in the parables and the writings of Luke and Acts at Aberdeen University in Scotland. He received a master's from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and a bachelor's from Augustana College. Before joining the faculty of Denver Seminary, he taught at Palm Beach Atlantic College and was a research fellow in Cambridge, England with Tyndale House. In addition to writing numerous articles in professional journals, multi-author works and dictionaries or encyclopedias, he has authored or edited 20 books including the historical reliability of the gospels interpreting the parables commentaries on matthew 1 corinthians and james jesus and the gospels an introduction and survey from pentecost to patmos an introduction to acts through revelation christians in an age of wealth a biblical theology of stewardship neither poverty nor riches a biblical theology of possessions Making Sense of the New Testament, Three Crucial Questions, Preaching the Parables, Contagious Holiness, Jesus' Meal with Sinners, and Handbook of New Testament Exegesis. So lots of written works there. He's had a lot of influence in the theological world, and we were really grateful to have him on for this episode. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Dr. Craig Blomberg about historic premillennialism. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and discussing historic premillennialism with us. You're very welcome. So I I wanted to go ahead and jump right in. And just for people who are unaware of historic premillennialism, and honestly, it's, it's relatively new to myself as well. I've only really even known there was a distinction between historic and dispensational. I only found that out maybe a year or two ago. Uh, before I really started diving deeper into eschatology. So for those who are unaware of the position of historic premillennialism, can you just sort of give us an overview of this position?
1: Really, it is
0: as simple
1: as the belief that there will be a millennium in the sense of a long period of time in the future when Jesus reigns on earth and that uh, Christ returns pre before this millennial period. Um, for 1800 years, this was the only form of premillennialism that existed, and it was only with the uh, um, beginnings in the 19th century, particularly under Jane Nelson Darby, uh, that. Uh, what has come to be called dispensational premillennialism grew up. And so the word historic was added um, to distinguish the two, to say when people spoke of premillennialism previously in the history of the church, this is what they were talking about. You'll also find some people who call it classic premillennialism for the same reason.
0: Understood. Understood. Okay. So, the, the next question is just basically, <clears throat> can you give me an idea of what some of the major portions of scripture are that inform this position? Is it almost like entirely out of revelation? Um, depending on who you ask, um, the
1: well-known, uh, biblical scholar who taught for many years at Fuller Seminary, George Ladd, uh, perhaps was responsible for making this position known again in um, the late 20th century, as much as anyone. And he used to uh, joke in class that if it wasn't for Revelation chapter 20, he could become an amillennialist. (laughs) Um, But uh, there would be many people who would turn to uh, significant portions of the Old Testament prophets If you uh, read uh, Isaiah through Malachi and focus particularly on the end of the books, uh, there is frequently uh, a picture of uh, a future earth where um, conditions seem to be um, not yet perfect and hence not the new heavens and the new earth, but uh, somebody will live to be a uh, hundred years old and not be considered old. <laughs> so it's obviously a much better earthly condition uh, than we experience now. Um, and so a lot of premillennialists of of all kinds would appeal to those passages as well. Um, some would appeal to first uh, Corinthians 15 where uh, Paul talks about um, how the end will come in stages and he talks about first Christ and then the first fruits um, and then the end will come. And he doesn't use one of the normal words for then or at least common words for then in the Bible, but he uses a pair of words in Greek, uh, "epeta eta which can uh, and often do refer to after a fixed interval of time. And so there would be some uh, premillennialists who would would turn to that passage as well. There's going to be a fixed period of time after um, the uh, saints are raised, after um, believers uh, are united with Christ at his return, uh, before the final end comes and the new heavens and new earth, all that is to say revelation is certainly the the most important book for this view
0: gotcha yeah and revelation twenty for those who don't know is sort of uh this is sort of the dividing point for for a lot of views I think because this is what when it talks about the millennialism the sorry the millennium and this is of course where all the views get their name from it's essentially uh I think basically how how um, they interpret the millennium. It's the only place you get the thousand years um,
1: referred to explicitly. That's right. Yeah.
0: Um, so you mentioned that that it was just called premillennialism for eighteen hundred years. How does the view hold up to church history? Is it a predominant view and are there, you know, major church fathers who agree with this position or is it more of a fringe view? Could you speak to that a little bit? Um, Before the time of Augustine, uh, during the
1: first four centuries of church history, um, there were uh, plenty of folks who took this position and there were also uh, a number who were developing the amillennial approach. Um, It was really only uh, with Augustine's The City of God um, in the fifth century, in the 400s, that um, in the Catholic Church from that point onward, um, amillennialism came to dominate. Um, Augustine was very persuasive and very influential. Um, when the Protestant Reformation came, uh, early 1500s with both Luther and Calvin, this was one area that for the most part, they did not break, uh, from Roman Catholicism, uh, as, as in a number of other areas. Uh, but then as, um, more Protestant, uh, Sects and distinctive voices grew up. Um, you would find uh, increasingly people recovering uh, premillennialism as an option as well. So certainly is not the dominant one uh, throughout church history. Um, probably can uh, garner more votes than postmillennialism uh, <laughs> if you want to just. Uh, Count votes, uh, it comes in second out of the three. Gotcha.
0: So you mentioned this split in uh <clears throat> a couple hundred years ago when dispensationalism kind of came on the scene. And uh for me, like I said, I didn't even realize there was a split uh, until recently. I figured there was just premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism. Um and I, in all transparency, I came from the dispensational world. I went to a college that was sort of a sister college to Dallas Theological. Um, so can you sort of explain the differences between dispensational and historic pre-mill? I, I have to ask, um, since
1: uh, your website says that uh, uh, all of you guys like dad, uh, dad jokes, um you didn't encounter pan-millennialism i did yes oh, the, everything will
0: pan out in that's the end right. right that's right okay <laughs> yes, very <good>. of course <laughs> Um, sorry what was the question <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh it's it's hard to it's hard to come back after a uh after a uh just a joke that wrecks you like that i'm sorry but, <laughs> and it wrecks me in a good way it wrecks me in a good way how did how did dispensationalism come about Uh, No, essentially, what's the difference between historic and dispensational premillennialism?
1: One of the main differences is over the question of um, the tribulation, the idea that there is uh, a period of unequalled distress uh, and uh, trouble on the earth immediately preceding Christ's return. Um, And while there have been uh, very occasionally um, people who wanted to preserve the dispensationalist label, but uh, believed in a post-tribulational coming of Christ, um, for the most part, uh, dispensationalism and pre-tribulationism have gone together and I think without exception, um, historic or classic premillennialism has gone together with post-tribulationism. To put this in language that's easier to digest, it surrounds the question of uh, a rapture. Is the picture that we get in 1 Thessalonians 5 of uh, believers being caught up into the air and so they will ever be with the Lord. Is that something that we are to separate off from the final public return of Christ so that believers are taken from the earth, they are therefore protected from this period of great tribulation um, and then return from heaven, as it were, with Christ at the time of his second coming? Or do believers, whoever is alive at that time, live through the tribulation? And um, the uh, picture of being caught up to meet Jesus is one then of providing his welcome party or escort entourage to bring him back down to earth Uh, to reign as king. Um, There are other more minor questions that often are bound up with this, like uh, what do we do with Ezekiel's uh, third temple? Um, The uh, chapters in Ezekiel 40 to 48 that go into incredibly great detail. um, And the dispensationalists would say, There's no way you can take that amount of detail and say that's just a metaphor or somehow a less than literal picture of something that has to be rebuilt. And because we know from Revelation 21 to 22 that there is no temple in the eternal state, then it has to happen either in a millennium or some would even go so far as to say uh, rebuilt in Israel before Christ returns. Uh, but I think more of them would, would say this reflects uh, the millennial existence. Um, historic or classic premillennialism would say, yeah, it's, it's a lot of detail. But um, Revelation 21 to 22 also describes the New Jerusalem as a perfect cube, giant cube of extraordinary magnitude." And uh, the only building that anybody in the Apostle John's world knew of or had ever heard of uh, that was a perfect cube was the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And so uh, it could well be that um, one could take even the details of Ezekiel in a metaphorical way. Um, Again, boiling that down to something more simply, the most basic difference is what do you do with believers and the tribulation? Do we live through it or not?
0: So I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but just for clarity, could you could you tell us why dispensational premillennialists do believe that we will be raptured before the tribulation, and why historic premillennialists do not believe that it will happen before the tribulation? A lot <clears throat> comes down to how you interpret. Uh,
1: 1 Thessalonians 5, but in fairness to uh, my dispensationalist friends and colleagues, uh, they have stressed in their writings uh, what they would call a literal hermeneutic. It's not that they don't recognize uh, metaphor in the Bible, but basically they would say um, your default position, what you start from unless you have strong reason to do otherwise, is a a very literal interpretation of scripture what sounds like it's describing real things um, should be taken as that Um, and so uh, apply that first Thessalonians 5 Um, the trumpet will sound Um, believers will be caught up to be with the Lord it sounds like we're Rising to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Where does the Lord live? He lives in heaven. The, the natural, literal, straightforward interpretation of that is that we would just accompany him on to heaven um, and therefore not be around uh, after that. Uh, not be. Uh, it, it's not the same event because it has us going up as uh, when Christ returns from heaven to earth, bringing the saints with him, because that's going down. Mm. Um, On the other hand, it's interesting that the term "apantesis," the Greek word for the meeting that is referred to in in 1 Thessalonians 5, is a term that often, not always, but often referred to a, a welcoming or escort party of some kind. Uh, Word came to uh, a prominent city in uh, the first century Mediterranean world that uh, a king or ambassador or dignitary or very wealthy person was visiting the town. And so a group of people would be organized uh, to head down the road in the direction that that person was coming from meet up with him and uh, greet him, perhaps offer gifts, or maybe he would offer them gifts, and then travel with him back to the city um, as a, a kind of entourage uh, in a culture of honor and shame. The more people you had in your in your wake, uh, in your train, as it were, the more honored you were. And so uh, they're saying, That's that's the imagery that we have here, Uh, not one of uh, going to meet Jesus and then
0: disappearing from the earth for a while. Mm. Understood, understood. So switching gears here, we talked a little bit about the differences between historic and dispensational. Um, I go to a church now that uh, holds, the pastor holds, holds an amillennial view, and he's teaching through Revelation using that view and one of the first sermons in Revelation 1 he brought up a point that I thought was interesting that I think is used for a rebuttal against premillennialists and that was where John said in Revelation 1:9 he he calls himself a partner in the tribulation and so I wanted to pose that question to you if if a tribulation period is coming in the future then why would john when he's writing revelation call himself a partner in the tribulation the the term there is uh, thlipsis
1: and it's uh, a common enough word in the new testament that each time you encounter it you have to ask what what does it likely mean in this context um, most translations will at some point or another use uh, the term distress or even suffering. Um, It often is used uh, interchangeably with or without uh, an article, a a the, and it really is only in a few key places, Jesus in uh, his Mount of Olives discourse, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in Matthew 24 in Parallels, and then again in Revelation 7, where you get the expression, the Great Tribulation, that it seems to be any kind of a, a technical word for a period of, of time uh, in the end times. So um, the NIV, for example, in Revelation 1-9 simply says that, John is a partner in the sufferings um, that uh, the Christians are going through right then at the end of the first century. This is the persecution that uh, most likely Domitian unleashed uh, in the mid-90s of the first century, and John hasn't been exempt from it. He has been exiled to the Greek island of Patmos, um, and there's nothing in chapter 1 that is looking as far ahead as uh, the great tribulation of chapter seven. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So we spoke a little bit about dispensational. We spoke a little bit about ah, mill. We briefly mentioned post mill. Um, you are self proclaimed historic premillennialist. I think that you have uh, good reasons to back up your position. So just if you could briefly tell me for those other three views, what are some preliminary reasons why you disagree with those views and why you wouldn't hold to any of those views? I think, um,
1: what we've said about first Thessalonians five, um, goes a long way, uh, exegetically out of scripture, uh, to make me rethink dispensationalism. Um, I, too, first came to Christ through a, a parachurch organization that was dispensationalist. I'd never heard that word. I never heard them use the word. It was only when I went to seminary years later that I go, oh, that's what I, that's what I lived through in yeah. high school. Um, and uh, I was also struck by the fact that um, although people have tried to find hints of it, in one or two early church fathers, you you really don't see the package at all like it came to exist until about 1830. And uh, the uh, work uh, in Ireland and Scotland of Jane Nelson Darby, and then as it was exported uh, to America where it became much, much better known, uh, there are still plenty of British and Irish Christians who don't even know what the word dispensationalist means. Um, but uh, uh, through uh, a man by the name of C.I. Schofield, who became most famous for instituting the famous notes in the Schofield Reference Bible, and then through a man by the name of Lewis Berry Chafer, who became the founder of Dallas Seminary, which in turn spawned a whole series of Bible colleges, uh, both in the US and eventually around the world uh, to propagate uh, this particular approach um, on a huge number of issues. Uh, dispensationalists and other Christians would agree. Um, but, but here is one where um, it seems to me that one of the big reasons for its popularity was because it promised Christians exemption from the worst suffering that God was going to allow in the world. And as my counseling friends and colleagues repeatedly remind me, if I don't notice it myself, 21st century Western Christianity has one of the most anemic theologies of suffering in the history of the world. Um, and countless people are giving up the faith right and left because of suffering that they just don't understand how God could allow that in their lives. When most of the history of Christianity just took that as part of life and assumed uh, life in a fallen world would have it. And, um, But I begin to digress. Um, Why not amillennialism? Uh, I can agree with many, many uh, details of what the the amillennialist would believe. What's interesting is to see Revelation 20 um, right after Revelation 19, where Christ has returned, the second half of Revelation 19, everybody would agree is a depiction of the return of christ and then um, you have the three creatures uh, as it were of the unholy or satanic trinity or triad that has opposed the divine trinity you've got the the two beasts that are sometimes called the first beast and then the, the false prophet but you also have satan their ringleader And the two beasts are disposed of at the end of Revelation 19. But I think uh, Revelation 20, uh, that was one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks that the church introduced, because now you have uh, what's going to happen to Satan. He's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. The amillennialist position um, has to say that that's a flashback to uh, what actually happened uh, with Christ's defeat of Satan on the cross um, so that the thousand years is uh, a symbolic representation of the church age that we're now living in. I have no problem with flashbacks in Revelation. There's a very clear one in in chapter 12 that does go back uh, when uh, the dragon is about to... Uh, Devour the child that the woman is going to give birth to, but uh, it's protected and caught up to heaven and you've got the birth and life and ascension of Christ all collapsed into one right there. Um, it's just that I don't see how, from a literary point of view, you can take Revelation 20 and not make it follow uh, immediately upon Revelation 19. Postmillennialism? I would love to be attracted to it. Um, Many, many Christians in the 19th century in American history were post-millennialists. Students who have studied the whole idea of manifest destiny, that America was the destination. And that could be from a Christian perspective or it could have been from a secular perspective. Um, but finally now, here is this uncharted, vast, largely unpopulated area where we can finally do it right. And even growing up in the 1960s and going through public education then, uh, there was still a lot of this optimism um, It was not until I was an adult that I felt the full force of what European settlers did to the Native Americans. Uh, It was not until I was a theologically trained adult that I learned how much of that was done in the name of Christ Um, because uh, we have to civilize these people Or as a Denver Seminary student said at our community worship just two days ago, who is of Native American background, the theory was kill the Indian, save the man. Um, But the idea of Christianizing the earth that motivated this, yeah, I could get caught up in it. I, I'm embarrassed to say that when I listen to some of the most horrific rhetoric of white Christian nationalism that we see in the political world today, I can feel some of its appeal because I'm a white Christian male and I have to I have to bash that down, knock it down like a whack-a-mole and then the head pops up again someplace else um, I understand its appeal wouldn't it be great if we could make the whole world just like us and, and the good things about us <sighs> history just tells us over and over and over again it ain't going to happen um, and and Things are gonna get worse before they get better. That was probably too much, but there you go.
0: <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, I appreciate it. Um, a lot of my, I, honestly, post millennialism is probably the only view that I haven't totally bought into at some point <laughs> in my life. And my well, issue you look young. Always, you still got time. <laughs> I, that's true. That's true. There's yet to be said about about the future. Um, but my my personal issue was always that I think that to be post mill you have to accept well you I I don't know if you have to but I think most people who are post millennialists accept that Revelation was written prior to the destruction of the temple and that a lot of what it talks about in Revelation was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple and things like that and I've sort of always had an issue with that because I think that. A lot of the early church fathers have stated, you know, that it was written by a certain person at a certain time, which happens to be after the temple was destroyed. And these are the same early church fathers that we trust to authorize, like the entire New Testament. Um, So that's sort of always been my, my personal issue with post millennialism. I don't
1: know that you would have to. I don't know that you okay. would have to make that link. Um, you're absolutely right that, that a majority have done so. Um, so maybe you can craft a, a new form, and then <laughs> we'll have to speak of historic post-millennialism and uh, allennial. Allennial. I like that. Post-millennialism.
0: Say that a few times fast. Who knows? Maybe I got a bright future in this subject. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Dr. Blomberg, I really appreciate your time today uh, discussing historic premillennialism and some of the reasons why uh, it's a legitimate view that we should be holding. Uh, Do you have a website that has some of your resources on it? I do not
1: um I am terrible when it comes to uh, social media other than having a <laughs> Facebook account that I look at once in a while um and Facebook Messenger to keep up with my uh, girls uh, but uh, a colleague of mine by the name of um Wook Chung and uh, I uh edited a collection of essays uh, published back in 2009 uh, with Baker Books and simply called The Case for Historic Premillennialism. Um, for those who are interested, this this may depress you or your listeners, Ryan, but my colleague, Dave Mathewson, uh, who's really our Revelation expert. Um, also worked with Sung Wook and just a couple of years ago came out with a book on the five different kinds of premillennialism. Whoa. You only know about the two that really have made the news. Uh, that's oh my a book goodness. that came out with Wiffenstock. Um, but uh, yeah, there have been some more
0: creative people as well. I can't keep up, Dr. Blomberg. Yeah, I've heard I've heard rumors of I know there's the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennialists. I don't know much about the mid-trib. I and know then there's there, the pre-rath that was invented in the nineteen eighties. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting too deep. It's getting too deep for me. I'll stick with the two for now. Probably <laughs> wise. Probably wise. <laughs> All right, Dr. Blomberg. Well, again, I really appreciate your insights on this topic and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me.